beautiful people to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome this week regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. Nice to see you today. Good to see you too. And hey, Maura Collins from the Vermont Housing Finance Agency. So glad you're going to dive into a conversation with us again. Yeah, talking about housing is my favorite thing, and I'm sure we'll have it all wrapped up within an hour. So this is, (laughs) let's do this. So everybody fasten your seatbelts because all the solutions will be here on the Montpelier Happy Hour. Um. Well, Mara, thank you for coming back to the show with us. I I know we talk about housing on the show a lot, but it is, you know, it's a topic that's hitting people in so many different parts of their lives. And let's face it, housing is our security. It is our safety. It is so many things for us. Um, Emily, we wanted to talk with Mara this week, however, because you've been getting a number of emails around housing that have kind of boiled down to, I have this perfect silver bullet solution. Why is nobody doing this? Can you kind of frame some of those emails for us? Sure. I, you know, I think we all see our corner more explicitly than other corners Mm -hmm. of an issue. You know, there's like that elephant story and a few other um, folk tales like that, but it comes down to the fact um, of, well, if we just build more housing, more housing for middle-class folks, then it'll solve the affordable housing problem. And if we just solve the affordable housing program, there will be more housing available for everyone. And if we just build more homeless shelters, then that will solve the problem of the people being on the street. And then people won't mind all this so much. And so we can really focus on what matters. And if we just fixed statewide zoning, then town level zoning will be okay. And no one's ever complained about town level zoning before. The problem is state level zoning. And if we just spend more money here, then everything else will ripple out there. And if we just keep people from being evicted, then everyone will be able to stay where they are and it'll be okay. And I, if we just had a plan now, those are all those things are true. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and Vermont and the legislature particularly, but people generally in these times struggle with complexity and the idea that we have complex systems that might not require complex solutions, but might require multiple solutions. Um, and I think if there is a plan, that plan has not been made explicitly clear to enough people. And that's hard. And it's also hard because like, you know, I don't want us to, um, I don't mean this in sort of the Vermont exceptionalist way, but there are solutions that we're talking about that might work to make a difference on housing in, Warren that are things that Brattleboro has been doing for a long time and are not going to make the difference for Brattleboro. So this is like raising the base is not necessarily going to be enough for us. So that's sort of like one of the other solutions that 
is on the table. So yes, that's the, those are the emails I get. Those are the conversations I'm having with people. Um, and my answer is yes. And yes. And, and so I keep on, there are a lot of housing bills in the works. And so I keep on getting emails from folks or talking to constituents who say, I saw this housing bill and that's not going to fix the problem that I know is a problem. I'm like, I know, but there's more than one bill. There are hundreds of bills. So Maura, <laughs> do you talk to people and do they say things like that to you? They do. And in my experience, um, I probably hear from people as much through the press as I do through my personal inbox where how it plays out in my world. Well, let me let me just back up and remind people if they're not familiar with the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, VHFA, that we are a statewide affordable housing lender. And the way that this session, I have been explaining VHFA's role um, to the legislature, because there's so many new members, is to really focus on that we exist because of certain market failures. Um, we have a housing market that is um, one of the complexities, Representative Kornheiser, that you were speaking to, is that housing is actually a public good. If we're all safely, affordably, decently housed, that helps the public at large. That lowers our healthcare costs, that lowers our public safety costs, that lowers um, the education costs. It just, the, the benefits to the public are astronomical and unmeasurable. But we, I think we can all agree that if everyone theoretically had safe, affordable, decent housing, society would be better off because our children would be more stable and we would all um, have better outcomes. Uh, but unlike some other public goods, uh, we achieve housing through purely private market means. You know, we rely on private landlords, we rely on realtors and appraisers and assessors and um, lenders and all this. And so we have to look to the markets to achieve this public good. And therefore, when there's market failures, I know I'm being nerdy, but like you, we have to intervene. And that's where the legislature comes into play. And, and so in its brilliance, and actually in the federal government's brilliance back in the 60s and 70s, the, the feds said, you know what, we have these tools available to us. Let's, um, let's create an agency like VHFA. And I won't go into the boringness about how exactly we work, but we're going to, the legislature created us, um, 49 years ago and said, your mission is to finance and promote affordable, safe, and decent housing opportunities for low and moderate income Vermonters. And for the first 30, 40 years of that time, 30 years, that was because interest rates were too high and we offered below market interest rates. And that was how we tried to help people who are low and moderate income get into housing. Then interest rates dropped. <clears throat> and I don't want to say we weren't needed, but that particular market failure really changed. And now people could get a 3%, 3.5% interest rate just fine. And so we pivoted and started working on down payment assistance. And it was access to homeownership and um, giving tax credits for to create more affordable rental housing. These were the ways that we kind of pivoted and, and focused. And now we're pivoting again because the issue is stock. 
and it's about not having enough homes. And so we've created programs to help build starter homes, modest, smaller, uh, beginner homes that folks can try to purchase because there's not enough on the market. And so we continue to evolve, we continue to pivot, and every time we come out with a press release, and this is where I'm, it took me a long time, but I'm getting back to your intro there, is that we will talk about, oh, the legislature awarded $15 million to VHFA, and we are going to turn around and open up a program for builders and developers of this, what the governor calls missing middle income homeownership. I, I call it starter homes, you know, just modest homeownership construction. And we will put out a press release saying, hey, developers and builders, there's a program out there like this. And what feedback do we hear? Why do we need more homeownership? We need to focus on rentals because renters have lower incomes. And it's the same thing you were saying, Emily, about how whatever we're doing, folks want something else. They're pointing to the thing we're not doing or we're not doing it enough. 15 million is a drop in the bucket or um, the worry that builders and developers are going to um, cover their costs and pay their bills through this program because they think that that's unfair and that they should do it for free or whatever the frustration is. And I get the frustration because every time we say we have this program for manufactured housing, which people call mobile homes, they'll be like, well, what about tiny homes? Well, we have a program for tiny homes. Well, what about homelessness? And you know, it's Folks aren't happy and I get it. They're right to not be happy because the problem is impacting so many people in so many ways. And there are so many avenues we have to achieve and that we're not going to solve this problem with that one silver bullet. If this were Act 250's fault, we would change Act 250. Full stop. It's not a single fault. It's not a single cause. It's frustrating because we saw that we were barreling down the tracks toward this brick wall for decades. We've been talking about, I've been on the show talking about it. In fact, we've talked about the data. We've seen this was coming. I don't know why we're surprised. So I find that the hardest part is just sitting with someone who's realizing that this has, is not a pandemic issue, but has been a growing issue and trying to find some compassion for that belief that like, well, we didn't know we were doing the wrong thing for the last 30 years. And it's like, I, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll sit in that space. But that's the hard part is because we do need all the things because we haven't been keeping up with all the things that maintenance all along the way. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Maura. Um, Emily, would you, could you quickly just highlight some of the the legislate um some of the bills that are coming through um the state just some of the the top ones that might be of interest to folks right now sure yeah i'm just having like the warmest memory of the first time we did a podcast with Maura, which was actually in person in bellows falls right. like after oh my meeting. gosh that was the best yep that was a long that was four years ago i think i think so um yes and thank you to the the village of Bellows Falls and who very graciously gave us space that day yeah and I think we're um, talking about a lot of these same issues we were talking about all these same issues we were mm -hmm. we were and we have mm -hmm. we have not solved them yet um so 
And for listeners who want to sort of dive into understanding some of these sort of numbers and the barreling, looming challenges better, um, Housing Vermont, which is an incredible website that VHFA maintains. Housing Data. Housing Housing Data data. Vermont, sorry. Housingdata.org. We don't even need the Vermont. It's just housingdata.org and you can get information for every town in Vermont and needs and homeownership and rental and incomes and everything people can imagine, including an inventory of all the affordable housing in the state. It's an amazing resource. Go check it out. So um, bills, let's see. Okay. So, and I think Maura might know better than I do, but I'll give it a go. So um, on the issue of homelessness and immediate need, not homelessness and need long-term affordable rental. I'll do that after. Um, We have in budget adjustment money to extend the motel housing. There's a difference of opinion between the House and the Senate on that, and that will get resolved in a conference committee likely um, to extend the emergency housing through until the warm weather comes for everyone in the motels. There's also money for VHCB, Vermont Housing Conservation Board, to pass on to homeless services organizations to build more shelter capacity. What there isn't in that particular little chunk of money is money to build something that's sort of interim, that's sort of like a little more than shelter, a little less than permanent housing. Um, And that has been called for by housing providers. We can talk about that a little bit more later. There is also money for accessory dwelling unit development um, in that same, I think that's in budget adjustment, maybe I'm wrong. Um, for more accessory dwelling unit development. That's one of the things that people have been getting excited about. That is the partly the VHIP program, which is if someone, if a private person has something that could be an apartment or is an apartment, but not is not online, it's money to help someone do that if they are willing to um, and able to rent to someone and sort of keep it affordable for a number of years, but not forever. So that's sort of, building out not just accessory dwelling units, but just sort of smaller units and bringing those online. And it's really, you know, there's been programs like that in Brattleboro for a long time, but this is like a way bigger chunk of change. This is like actually what the cost, very close to what the cost of this would be Hmm. um, rather than sort of a tiny grant to supplement private money. And then there continues to be really like sort of historic amounts of money, but not enough money going from VHCB to the housing trust, such as Wyndham Windsor Housing Trust, um, to build out affordable housing, sort of according to their traditional business model. Um, But at least in this area, and I imagine other places around the state as well, they are not actually able to spend the money as fast as the money is coming in um, because of other limitations, not just construction, but sort of like siting and, site acquisition and planning and like a bunch of other things like that. And then, so that's just like, let's go through all the ways we would spend dollars and then talk about some of the policy fixes. Does that seem like a good plan, Maura? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then there's money that VHFA is working with to expand access to manufactured homes to um, and replace some manufactured homes 
there's money to buy housing for the first time um, for first generation home buyers, um, for folks who might not have down payments, that kind of thing. So expanding home ownership. And then there's also, is there also money to help developers sort of like close the development gap? The yeah, last for both home ownership, which I spoke to a little bit, but also this year it's new to focus, have a revolving loan fund, capitalized revolving loan fund for uh, developers of rental housing, where it's for folks just over those income thresholds of what's traditionally deemed affordable housing. But we would, um, uh, this would be creating what used to be market rate rental housing because the market again is failing and we're not even doing that at this point. Uh, so this would be a loan, you know, a developer can go out and get a loan from a bank to build a building rental building, but the, because it costs so much to build and the rents they'll charge will only bring in so much income. The bank is probably only going to approve them for a certain, you know, 85% of what they need. And there's still a gap. And so um, if passed, we would step in with just a little loan for that developer. And in exchange for getting that little loan that would have some advantageous rates. They'd be a low rate loan and have a long term. It'd be um, structured the way that um, would keep the development costs low. In exchange for that, the developer would cap the rent increases at no more than 3% a year. And they would keep those units affordable for as long as they have that loan. But if they pay off that loan, those restrictions go away. It's not permanently affordable, but the resource, the money is permanent. And we would turn around and make another loan. And we built in protections that if, if one of these loans were ever paid off, there'd be a three-year notice to tenants uh, so that they would have time to know that, oh, something's changed. And now it's not necessarily a 3% increase each year. It could be different. And so, um, but then we'd turn around and, and use this money in a similar way in the future. So there's a lot of creativity around trying to address this from different ways. We have long addressed our problem in some really specific ways. And now we are really opening that up and saying, it's all hands on deck, we need everything. And so let's try a little bit of everything to see if we can chip away at this, at this problem. And then one more place that we're spending money, um, and it's going to be sort of interesting to see if we can spend enough money on this one, is one of our other guests' favorite topics, which is wastewater. Mm -hmm. And so um, in order to build more housing in a lot of Vermont, um, in village centers in a lot of Vermont, we need to fix wastewater infrastructure and water infrastructure. And so... I think it might appear sort of separate from housing to a lot of people, but that is also another big area for of investment is investing in wastewater, both actually in mobile home parks, and we've talked about that before, but more um, sort of newer investments in village centers and wastewater. So that is, I think, most of the pile of money. And then we could talk about policy, if you want to do this. Should we keep on going from there? 
or did I miss some yeah. money, Maura? The only other investment I'm thinking of, and this is <clears throat> just reinforces the intersectionality. You brought up wastewater and people don't think of that as a housing support, but I agree with you. It totally is. I see weatherization as another oh, example yes. oh, right. where there's more money. There have been historic investments in weatherization and there's even more coming. And that weatherization uh, investment really helps very low income people get weatherization of their homes for free. But then also a weatherization, expanding a weatherization program that helps more moderate income folks because um, it still cannot, there's times when it can be cost prohibitive to invest in your home in that way. So those are some exciting, there's a lot, um, people have heard about the, maybe the Affordable Heating Act, which is the 2.0 version of the clean heat standard. And that's a place where, you know, me as a Hauser has been over in Senate Natural Resources and Energy, making sure that we have opportunities for investments in manufactured homes and rental housing and things like that in that act so that um, if that goes through, that there are ways we're protecting and supporting housing through that. So that's what makes this work so complex mm -hmm. is that it's not like I can spend all day in the housing committee and think that I'm touching housing. I actually have to go to the Commerce Committee and talk about the impact on jobs and what employers need to house their folks. I have to go over to the Energy Committees, the Healthcare and Human Services Committees. I mean, it really does go everywhere. So I feel for you in the Ways and Means Committee to have to um, really touch all of this. And you know, back when we were having our first uh, Montpelier happy hour conversations about this. We would talk about weatherization a lot more and weatherization and sort of how, in addition to the fact that we need new housing stock, our existing housing stock needs so much work to bring it up to um, affordable, like affordable, meaning people can afford to live in it, standards around heating and um, cooling. So those are the places that we both need to spend dollars and are spending dollars. Um, and then the next area is policy. And so there's like all kinds of policy questions. There's zoning questions. Um, so what kinds of housing needs to get cleared through zoning um, and a big emphasis on what can happen in our downtowns and village centers that would not need um, as much approval as something sort of that might be turning a farm into housing. Mm -hmm. um, and that really gets at a lot of sort of the existing tensions in Vermont's conversation about like what it is and who it is and how it wants to be, mm -hmm. um, as well as questions around climate and climate change and what being a climate resilient community looks like. And so there's a lot of work being done on that and making sure that folks can easily build in um, downtown and village centers. Um, there's and questions can, around, yeah. Sorry, can I jump in just quickly? Because um, I think we talk about the the difference between like down building housing in downtown and village centers versus in, in the more rural areas. Um, and I don't know that we've ever really distinguished why we kind of put different focuses on that. Um, so as I understand it, part of the reason is if we focus on kind of infilling downtowns, um, and village centers, we can prevent sprawl, we can create more walkable communities, 
Um, and that can help with climate change and, and it can also help with, um, uh, you know, making sure people don't drive as much, but are there other reasons why we're focusing so, on downtowns? Yeah. So long-term it's less expensive to build in a downtown and village center. You need to spend less money on road maintenance, less money on water quality maintenance, all of that thing. You know, that's, you sort of get economies of scale in the short term. It's often more expensive to build. It can be more expensive to build in a downtown and village center because of sort of the logistical stuff that there's all these people around while you're building and all these other buildings around when you're building. Um, but again, you don't need to sort of run an extra road, run an electric line, run an internet line, all of that stuff. Um, so there's that. There's also a lot of research that people are healthier when they live in downtown and village centers um, because of walkable communities, because kids sort of, you know, families can look out for each other, all kinds of things like that. Um, it's long-term less expensive for the individuals living in downtown and village centers because they're not paying the cost to commute. Um, and because their heating costs actually can be lower if sort of people are closer together often. Um, what else? Why else do we like to do that, Maura? Oh, I'm sure we're, you know, glossing over some of the big ones. But, you know, historic preservation. We have these beautiful historic buildings that we want to protect and maintain. Some would say this is a way of carbon sequestration, going back to the environment, because um, there's embedded carbon in those construction materials. So reusing buildings is um, a better outcome. And you're right, we, we don't, the cost of putting in new sewer and water lines and infrastructure can be very cost prohibitive. If we have that in our downtowns, we should maximize that. And right now, it's hard to think about paying money to extend the sewer line when we know that right now we don't have the density in our downtowns to take advantage of what we've already done. Thank you. And then there's also, um, you know, we're glossing over all of the environmental implications, but one big one is people sort of think about how Vermont has like a lot of forests and a lot of open land. Mm -hmm. um, but what we don't have is a lot of connected forest land and connected yes, fields. And so point. for the creatures, um, that is actually really, really necessary. And it's um, particularly in Wyndham County, one of the reasons that we have sort of an overrun an excess of deer, which are sort of defoliating the forests and creating all kinds of other problems is because we don't have continuous forest blocks. We have um, fragmented forest blocks. I just used so many little technical environmental terms I didn't even know I had in my fingertips. You, you forgot wildlife corridors. Wildlife corridors, another good one right there. Thank you, Olga. So um, that's another reason why we do that. And then sort of, you know, in a downtown like Brattleboro, um, this isn't as much a thing, but right outside of our downtown, which is called sort of our neighborhood development area. So that's, you know, like extending out onto Frost Street up near the hospital, those kinds of things. Um, there's lots of conversations around um, minimum lot sizes, um, about parking requirements, about sort of ways that communities have traditionally tried to control development that winds up with sort of a single home or on a sort of postage lot um, rather than things like townhouses um, or even small apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh, so as usually happens when I'm talking with Maura and Emily, um, totally lost track of time. 
So we are out of time for this first um, segment of the happy hour. Um, we're going to quickly go to break here from some of our underwriters, but we'll be right back. second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, this is the show where we talk about how everything shakes out for the rest of us that happens in Montpelier. You can also find us on BCTV as well as our Facebook page and our Captivate and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I am speaking with regular contributor Emma Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro, as well as Maura Collins, who is the head of the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, or VHFA. And we are talking about, you guessed it, housing. Hey, Emily. Mm -hmm. What are we going to remind our listeners of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively. Not their employers, not the station, not their pets. Just those of us here. Although I do have a snoring dog at my feet. So he doesn't seem that upset by what I'm saying just yet. (laughs) Maybe he's heard it all before. He's like, "Ah." there she goes again. Puts him to sleep. Um, Emily, right before the the break, you were giving us a rundown on some of the policies and bills that are going through the, the state house right now around housing. I think the only one you didn't get two was around evictions. Do you have a couple minutes to just kind of touch on that? I do, but I'm realizing that there's another big one that we didn't talk about oh, at all. Okay. So, um, which sort of touches eviction and doesn't. So um, there are, there's movement in a number of committees to move forward with um, no cause eviction charter changes. And I think that's because there's sort of acknowledgement that a no cause eviction legislation on the state level, which a number of other states have, um, would not be able to move forward here. And so sometimes it's sort of a policy strategy is to do things at multiple town levels, cause a bit of chaos, and then people will sort of get used to the idea and pass something at the state level. Or and just for the record, we also have it for affordable housing in Vermont already. The tax credit program, which is the largest source of creating affordable rental housing in the state, we already adhere to just cause eviction, no cause evictions. So There's thousands of units in Vermont that are successfully employing this strategy and that been doing it for 30 years and it hasn't been a problem. Good to know. Thank you, Maura. Thank you, Maura. Um, And so there are a lot of conversations around just cause eviction, no cause of eviction, what, um, how perhaps our judicial system might need a little bit of strengthening if that was going to move forward. Um, We already have a bunch of Um, Great programs that have been expanded um, around mediation in the type in eviction um, proceedings, a bunch of things like that. Um, I would add just a little bit of framing. Um, I think there's been a movement in the context of this conversation and a few others um, to stop differentiating between landlords and housing providers. Um, and just sort of like a vocabulary check. Mm-hmm. Generally, we use the term housing providers to to describe affordable housing nonprofits, right. um, which would be our housing authorities, 
our federal housing authorities, our state designated federal housing authorities, and then our housing trusts. And we usually use landlords, which is an awkward term, yes, to describe private rental ownership. Um, I've seen a move for private rental owners to start calling themselves housing providers and describing what they do as social work. It is not social work. They are not professional social workers. They do not hire professional social workers. Um, they are running a for-profit model and people do that in a wide variety of ways that is not very closely regulated in the state of Vermont, though it is more closely regulated in other places. Housing providers are very closely regulated in what they do, as Maura just said. Um, and then the other one is who owns our housing stock? Um, so we've talked before on the show about how many vacant homes we have that are being used as second, third, fourth vacation mm -hmm. homes. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also a real big move nationally that is really, I think, just starting to hit Vermont around um, the ways that investment firms use housing as part of their portfolio, right. um, which can lead to some fairly bad outcomes for the individuals who might be living in those units and sometimes not. Um, and so really exploring that, I think, is one of sort of the next frontiers in some of this work. Thank you. What else on policy roundup, Maura? Oh, there's always going to be other bills um, that are out there. I can I can think of a few small ones, and I think the question just becomes, are they going to uh, get the attention and move? Uh, sometimes these bills pluck along for a little while and then get swept up into some of the bigger bills. Mm -hmm. To go back to one of the very first points we were making on the show, uh, it has been a growing trend to instead of having lots of little housing bills that pass, uh, some of the housing committees really like having these big omnibus mm. committee bills. And I think it may be in part informed by the experience you had, Representative Kornheiser, of wanting to show that we're, we're doing a lot of things all at once and that it can be a bill, bit misleading when folks hear about a bill that passes focused on just cause evictions if there's not something passing about um, shared equity housing homeownership models, and if there's not something about planning or zoning and the like. And so by pulling everything, it's a strategy, you know, into one big bill, there's a lot you can point to. And so I do think, uh, you know, there are other little bills that are looking along, and I just, I don't know if they'll get swept up into one of those big, massive bills along the way. Um, during the break, Emily, um, Oh, you asked a question, but I want to jump in with a quick question of mine. Um, <clears throat> can we do a quick pulse check on, you know, when it comes to housing, hear a lot of assumptions about why we have a housing crisis or who's at fault for the housing crisis? Have either of you heard kind of any myths right now floating around? that you'd like to take a minute to kind of clarify or squash? Well, Maura jumped in with one earlier in the show, which is it's all Act 250's fault. And if we just reformed Act 250, we would have all the housing we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just give like a hard no. That's just not true. Yeah. What about uh, short-term rentals? I'll jump in with this one. Uh, not my most popular uh, 
opinion that a lot of people don't like hearing this, but um, I always have to ground my assumptions and data. And so uh, there are short-term rentals are having a huge disproportionate impact on some communities housing stock and they're severely pushing out um, and limiting what housing is available. When we look at where that's happening, that's happening in about 10 to 12 communities so far right now. So for those 10 or 12 towns, um, it's, it's a problem. And so last year, the legislature allowed, created the ability for municipalities to be able to um, uh, regulate their own um, short-term rentals and, and have provisions that, can, um, that they can address that. In a lot of towns, though, we're not seeing that happen. And a lot of people would fairly challenge me and say, well, yet, but like soon the, the 12 is going to turn to 15 and to 20. Um, and that is fair. And that's why we always are promoting housing commissions or housing committees so that people on the ground in that town know what's happening and what's making up their housing stock. But statewide, I'm a statewide organization. So statewide, we know that uh, just about three, just over 3% of our housing stock is short-term rentals. 17% mm. of our housing stock is vacation homes. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how much the 3%, imagine like, um, you know, circles here. I don't know if all 3% is included in the 17% number or mm. is it separate or not. But, you know, when people get excited about penalizing short-term rentals because they see dollar signs of like, oh, we can charge them a lot of money with taxes and, and, you know, solve all of our housing challenges this way, or they want to, you know, shut them down. We forget that um, Vermont has always been one of the top two states of having the largest proportion of our housing is, has always been secondary vacation homes. Uh, we are a very tourist driven economy. And I think that our, our economy is based on that and to severely disrupt that would have big economic impacts. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that there, we need to be careful that um, the benefits that the short-term rental industry, the, the um, websites are creating, which is, I don't know, yesterday I was skiing at smugglers notch and it's february break and i know like if you wanted a condo at smugs you used to call smugs guest services to get that now you go to airbnb you know that it's the same ski condo it never was going to be available for year round rental it's always been a ski condo but that's making up some of the numbers that are showing up in my data that says 3 percent of our housing stock short-term rentals. It's not, they're not new developments. They're not single family homes that used to be available for Vermonters to live in. It's just that they're using this platform. Now, what we have a problem is, is when this platform becomes, creates opportunities for those investment firms, like you were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. to then have easier access or even individuals who in the past it would have you know blown my mind and been too much work to buy up a second home yep. to rent it out but now because airbnb or vrbo is going to do the marketing for me and the platform and collect the taxes and register all the stuff now all of a sudden i'm considering a business model i never would have considered before and maybe i am taking year-round homes off the market so i I get nervous when people just um, assume that all short-term rentals are evil. 
And I look at the way that for some folks, they're making housing more affordable, you know, like my next door neighbors who are retired and go to Florida for three months in the winter, and they do short term rental their home for those three months, but that home is not otherwise going to be available to the the public to rent or own. Mm -hmm. And so since... Mora disrupted my assumptions on this one. <laughs> I have really been thinking of short-term rentals as really like sort of the knife's edge of non-primary home ownership. I'm trying not to call them second homes because again, for some people it's their fourth home. Um, but for sort of vacant home ownership. And when I received hundreds and hundreds of emails from short-term rental owners, um, I had a lot of people's business model explained to me as justification for why I shouldn't try to regulate short-term rentals, which was very helpful um, <laughs> for me and my policy goals, and maybe not for those people and maintaining their rentals. But it was essentially like people got mortgages on their non-primary home with the profit from short-term rentals built into that mortgage agreement. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are lots and lots and lots of people who are able to own vacation homes and second homes that they leave vacant and heat all through the year, um, but don't have short-term rentals because they actually don't need that income. And so now I'm sort of from a policy perspective, more interested in vacant homes in general, um, regardless of whether or not they're used for short-term rentals. Well, I appreciate what you said, Mara, about how this issue is impacting some towns, but not others. Um, because it also, you know, goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of the show that uh, housing is so personal, economics are so personal that you can't always see what's happening in another community if it's not happening to you. Uh, so really appreciate just kind of that statewide um, perspective. Can I quickly jump in with another myth, though, because oh, I really sure. like this question. Um, again, almost building off of what you just said about it, it's hard to sometimes see a perspective when it's not one that you've lived through or experienced. Um, I'm going to admit that uh, I... I see the problem and the unsustainability of the hotel motel homeless response system that that we have. And at the same time, I'm not of the opinion that expanding our shelter capacity is the right solution for that problem. I agree. And there are uh, it does feel like, you know, this is shelters are what we do when we need to solve homelessness. And that becomes that expected next step. And I have had the experience of talking with people who are without homes and saying, we have a shelter bed available. Do you want it? Most of them are going to say yes. Okay. Like they are outside there, they are in their car or they are with their children or whatever the situation is. When you offer them a shelter bed, oftentimes they will say, yes, please. I, I want to be indoors and safe tonight. And at the same time, if that close ended question, limits the answer we're getting to a yes or no. And if it were an open-ended question and we turn to people without homes to say, where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? Where do you see yourself a week from now? 
I don't know that anyone's going to say a shelter, congregate shelter setting. They're going to say a place of their own, an apartment, four walls, a little um, dignity and self-sufficiency and the ability to um, have Lock housing. the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we just, so I get nervous about the investments in added shelter capacity. I think that we, like every other state in the country, like our nation as a whole is building up a shelter industrial complex that will be hard to dismantle someday. Um, and, uh, and so I think that sometimes we conflate the idea of shelter with services because that's where some of the best services are provided. That's where we truly know how to do wraparound services and we are doing some of the best work and the, the best agencies are working with that model. And I kind of want to upset that model and say, okay, but what if those great services could be available in independent apartments? And it's going to cost more for a service provider to have to drive all over town visiting people in their homes. And it's not going to be as efficient and convenient as having a house meeting or something, you know, where you can talk to six people at once and get your, your point across. But it still is the better outcome for the individuals. And frankly, more of the people receiving those services will have to consent to those services once they're in their own unit. Yep, absolutely. A lot of people won't consent to those services because they don't like the way that they're delivered to them. And those people have a right to do that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so we're holding them hostage a bit when we can force them in the shelter setting. So that would be one. And the last one I would say is that um, it used to be that choosing to be a housing developer or a builder was a profession like any other. You'd be a carpenter, a plumber, an accountant, you'd be a home builder. That was just a job people had. Now it has shifted to be in the category of jobs we are suspicious of. Um, I hate to say it, but lawyers are another one I think of. There's these professions we have in our minds um, where we're not always quite sure that it's worth, you know, or what, what are you getting away with? And um, I just want to stand up for the builders and developers who we work with all the time, because it used to be the, the model, and I think we've talked about this actually in previous um, uh, times I've been on the Montpelier Happy Hour, where um, municipalities would put in roads, sidewalks, curbs, lighting, water, sewer, every rec paths, everything, and just hope that a builder developer would show up and put workers for their jobs and factories, kids in their schools, you know, a community base, and it would build out their community in a beautiful way. And that's no longer the model. The municipalities' budgets are stretched. They have to go to the voters every year to get approval. And so not surprisingly, the, uh, their budgets are not keeping up with their actual cost of services. And so they have to, they can't make those investments in their own community. They have to push those costs onto developers and they've become much more suspicious of these developers and saying, okay, if you want to put housing in my town, you pay for the roads, the sewer, the water, the curbs, the lighting and everything and maintain those roads. And, you know, we also want you to pay a school impact fee and a rec fee and a this and that. And the builder has one choice, which is to put those costs onto the housing they're creating. And no one can understand why now all of a sudden we can't build single family homes for under $200,000 a year or, or a unit. And it's because we've just cost shifted those expenses, they are real expenses. Um, and now we've left it not to have that be socialized across the entire community through 
taxes, but instead it's, it's put right onto the person who's trying to buy that home or rent that apartment. And not to get too complex about this, but the reason that municipalities don't have that money and are cost shifting it because the state has cost shifted more responsibility onto the municipalities with less resources available to do that. And the state has done that because the federal government has done the same thing to the state. Mm -hmm. Amen. (laughs) The dominoes. Um. Thank you, Maura, for touching on those those myths. I think that is always very, very fascinating. Um, Emily, during the break, you asked Maura a really great question. Can you <laughs> ask it again? Maura, do you think we can do it all and fix everything? I think I don't want to do this work if my answer was no. <laughs> I think I think I'd I'd be done and retire and go do something else. Yes, I do think we can do it all. I don't think we can do it tomorrow. I think it's gonna be painful. Um, I think we need more creativity and more people. I used the phrase earlier, all hands on deck. I don't think we have enough people right now to get the job done. I think we need more workers and more um, ideas and, and tools to implement all this. But I do think we can do it. We got ourselves into this mess. We can get ourselves out of it. It's going to require some, some mental shifting of assumptions and there's going to be change involved and it's that's going to be hard for folks. But um, I would have the same answer if you asked me about the childcare conundrum that we're in or uh, systemic racism or, you know, the healthcare crisis. It's just, yes, we can do this. We have to do this. Climate change requires it. You know, we do need to keep doing it. I don't think, though, that it's a silver bullet. So to go back to the very beginning and the emails you got, I truly don't think that we can blame this on one thing. I don't think it can be solved in one way. But I do think that all these incremental steps are the right way to go, because if we were to have a revolution you know, tomorrow, it would be too disruptive to all of these markets and systems and all that. But I think that we're doing the right thing by continually increasing the stock of housing, increasing our investments in poor quality housing, looking at all housing types and not just thinking that the answer is at one end of the spectrum or the other, but we need rungs on the ladder of every step of letting someone access housing and and achieve that in whatever that looks like for them. But I I do think that we're going to get there. And the the new Vermonters coming into our state are bringing new ideas and um, energy and skills and abilities. And so I think it's a very exciting time. Thank you, Emily. Anything you want to add? Yeah. Do you think we can do it, Emily? You're the lawmaker here with your money on the purse string. So are your Um. hands on the purse string? I do think we can do it all, but I think we need to keep our eyes wide um, and continue to embrace all possible solutions um, and be sort of flexible with our own assumptions and also be flexible in sort of our community's focus. So um, I need to be able to welcome solutions that might not be the solution for Brattleboro, but will help the five towns around Brattleboro or um, help things in the Northeast Kingdom. The same way folks in the Northeast Kingdom need to be mindful and open to some of the solutions that will have a bigger impact in Brattleboro. Mm -hmm. I liked what you said, Mara, about helping people access kind of the the housing that works for them. Um, 
it it's always felt that our communities really value home ownership over say renting uh and just a reminder that not everyone wants to be a homeowner not everyone wants to be a renter and and making sure that we provide avenues for for both all of those yeah the stat i've always heard is that 95% of vermonters rented at some point in vermont and so uh we cannot leave that rung of the ladder out, whether that be um, a temporary stop along the way to homeownership or whether that be a permanent stop. My sister is much more successful in a, um, a traditional way than I will ever be, and she has never owned a home in her life. And that freedom of not being limited to a certain part of the country or home or any of that has allowed her to be able to chase job opportunities and advancement that has really paid off well for her. And uh, that is, there's just, you know, what's the phrase of to Muhammad, there's many ways up the mountain and we need to make sure that we're allowing people uh, many ways up that mountain. Thank you. Um Laura, if people want to learn more about your your agency, uh, or uh, where can they go? VHFA.org. It's our website. So that's Vermont Housing Finance Agency. So VHFA.org. And the other website we talked about earlier was housingdata.org, mm-hmm. which is where you get all sorts of community level information, including a lot of uh, resources, if you're interested in starting a municipal housing commission or committee, planning commissions are great and design review boards and all these groups are excellent at implementing the policies and writing the policies of a municipality, but they're so busy focused on municipal bylaws and planning decisions and applications in front of them that they don't always have the time to focus in on housing. And so we have examples of where there are housing commissions, how to set them up, sample charters, uh, how to assess your housing needs locally, as well as the policy tools to address those needs, because every community's needs are going to look different. So you'd look at different policy tools. And VHFA tries to be very helpful in supporting and starting up these commissions. And so uh, housingdata.org has an entire housing ready toolbox because we're working hard to try to have every community be housing ready. Thank you. Thank you. I have to check out the toolbox. As a reporter, I've used housingdata.org a lot. Um, I always find the, the data point on where people are commuting versus where they live um, always very, very fascinating. Emily, if people want to learn more about you or check out your office hours, how do they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you can sign up for my newsletter there, get all the social media feeds, my email, my phone number. And then every second Saturday of the month at 10.30 a.m., I'm at the library with other Brattleboro area representatives for a community conversation. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, every Friday at 2. You can also find us on BCTV and wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Have a great weekend, everyone, and take care.